All right. How's everybody today? Good, good. Glad to see you. <clears throat> we got plenty of food left, so come get seconds afterwards if you'd like some, or if you want a little to-go thing, you can always ask the ladies in the back. And because you guys tip them generously, they will probably be more inclined to provide for you. Uh, welcome. If it's your first time here, especially welcome. And um, we have uh, guests with us today, the lovely young couple over to my right. This is my mom and my dad, Jim and Diane Smith. Uh, so they are who to blame for me. <laughs> they're, uh, uh, so they're up here uh, for the week on vacation and, um, and then also uh, tomorrow is my dad's birthday as well. So he's, yeah. But it's good to have him here down, down from way, way south Georgia. Um, so we are in the book of Numbers still this week. <clears throat> and today is Valentine's Day. So we're going to look at one of the most unromantic passages in the Bible. <laughs> and we're going to look in Numbers chapter 5. So remember where we are now. God has organized the camp over the first four chapters. He said, this is where you're going to camp. This is how you're going to set up. This is, going to how you're this is how you're going to march out. This is how you're going to tear down and set up this big movable Mount Sinai, which is the tabernacle. And so everything's in place. And these final details now in these next couple of chapters, he's giving to the camp that deals with a number of issues, but things like purity, things like holiness, and this is the key. All of these commandments that God gives in Leviticus and Numbers are to not just preserve Israel as a society, but to preserve them as a society that lives as an object lesson to the God that they serve. That's the big key, is Israel's life is to be their witness, corporately and individually. So that's why there's so much emphasis on things like holiness, cleanliness, purity, um, you know, if, if someone wrongs somebody else, how that's dealt with, because not just ritual impurity, but also sin itself can defile God's people. And so God is, is laying out these instructions of how they're going to live. And he says in chapter 5, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has an infectious skin disease, a discharge of any kind, or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away any male and female, or send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did this. They sent, outside the, they sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord instructed Moses. Now this is a pickup from Leviticus. Those of you here last year, you remember we looked at, there's whole chapters on those things with skin issues, infectious skin diseases, discharges, or the contamination from coming in contact with a corpse is it, was, it meant you were unclean. It didn't mean you were unlovable. It didn't mean you were less than anyone else in the society. What it meant was you are a spark that cannot be in this powder keg. All right? The holiness of God cannot be infringed upon by the sinfulness of humanity without there being danger to humanity. So there was a separation and it, this was basically telling Israel, look, there's a, even in the camp, and it uses that term camp because it's talking about Israel as they're camped in the wilderness. They're his mobile army. So it doesn't say kill the people. It doesn't say cut them off from the people. Those are two punishments for sin. But it says they have to live outside the camp. 
Later, this would be developed into people uh, in Jesus' day, the lepers that had to live at a distance. And they had to say, when they came near people, they'd say, hey, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Meaning, you know, don't come near me because you may accidentally contaminate yourself and then you'd have to go through all of these purity requirements. So it's, it's an example of the camp of God is the army of God and it's got to be maintained uh, in a state of holiness and readiness to be His army. So even down to the cleanliness laws, there's a separation between the people that can dwell in the camp and the, those who have to dwell on the outside of the camp. Even in that, there's, a, there's an object lesson being shown in terms of God's purity and holiness that radiates outward from the tabernacle. Then the next session, section, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when a man or a woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. Now, NIV says wronged, uh, wrongs another in any way. Literally in Hebrew it says, if they do from any of the sins of humanity. This is the literal wording. So it's not just wrong somebody like, ah, I cut you off in traffic. It's like uh, any of the sins that you can commit against other people. So this is what God's saying. If there's any sin that's committed, uh, and then that becomes, it says, and so... Let me, NIV, let me read it how it says, Say to the Israelites, when a man or a woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty. This is huge. You can just skim over this if you're just reading it. But what it's saying is, sin committed against another person is unfaithfulness to the Lord. Don't miss that. Like This is an underline and a highlightable verse. Sin, if anyone wrongs anyone else, that is being unfaithful to the Lord. That's the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of holiness. This completely breaks with the ancient Near East traditions and cultures around Israel where sins against the God were one thing and sins against humanity were another thing. And as long as you didn't do the latter or the former, you could do the latter or vice versa. And in Israel, it's like, no, no, no. Sins against another are sins against God. It is unfaithfulness to God. Why? Because if you're sinning against someone, you're sinning against someone who bears the image of God. So an attack on someone else is an attack on God. Ethics and theology cannot be separated in any responsible manner. That's why it's it, it, when you see people who have all the theological knowledge in the world, and they can quote every Bible verse known to man, and they can tell you all of the do's and don'ts and how everything should work, and they can comment on every aspect of society and, and, and every theological quandary and they're just brilliant, look at how they treat their wait staff. Look at how they treat the person that they encounter on the street. Look at how they treat their family. Because that's the, the marker of whether their theology is any good or not, is how they treat people. Those two things, they have to go hand in hand. You can't love God and not love God's image. You have to do both. So, it says... Uh, when a man or woman wrongs another in any way and is so unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. That's step one. That's just step one. There's a step two that's just as important. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. So you've got to pay back. You've got to make what's right. Now, obviously, this would refer to sins that involve material uh, a material sin or defrauding someone of something whether it's money whether it's their goods whether whatever reputation anything like that the message in this you got to 
not just return it, but return it and add a fifth to it. Like you've got to pay back and above and beyond and to the person who was wronged. We've talked about this before back in Exodus, how we, you know, our criminal justice system today is kind of like I had my car broken into and I had something, you know, not much stolen from it, but just, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff. And if, if they had caught that person, which they didn't, but if they had caught that person, that person wouldn't have had to pay me back. They would have gone to jail, paid a fine, whatever, but I would not have seen any of that. And that's kind of not a good, I would say, there's, there, there's better ways to do justice in the world because the person who's wronged is the person who should be restored, who should be paid back, at least in God's economy and God's uh, setting up of His people. So that's an area where, let's say you are involved in things like criminal justice or th- you know, issues of law, legality. For the believer, for the Christian, the, the underlying theme that should color how we approach those situations are, how can the person who was wronged be restored best? And then whatever laws and procedures and practices flow from that, that's where Christians are free to disagree and, and figure out different ways to do it. But the underlying ethic should be you know, I, I, if I violate someone, their rights, their property, then just paying a fine to somebody else isn't the end of the matter. It's restitution. I've got to make restitution to that person. And that doesn't always line up in our society today, but it's a biblical challenge to our worldview, I would say. But he goes on to say, but, verse 8, if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest, along with the ram with which atonement is made for him. In other words, the offering for the sin. So it's saying if you can't pay the person back because they're dead or they're not around and they have no close family because that's who the next it should go to, then you still got to pay back the community and it will be done through making the offering to God. So ultimately, God is at the tail end of everything overseeing it, going someone needs to be restored. Someone needs to be compensated for the wrong that's been committed and it needs to go to them. But if they're not around, if there's no them, then bring it to me because you are all my community ultimately. So there's some really cool ways in just in this little kind of section you gloss over when you're reading through that tells us about the nature of God, how he looks at justice, how he looks at reconciliation, sins against one another. So it goes on to say, verse 9, all the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Each man's sacred gifts are his own, but what he gives to the priest will belong to the priest. So again, this is how this community is going to work, this little mini Mount Sinai with the priests and the Levites. It's going to be not just the center of religious life, it's going to be the center of civil life as well, legality, um, you know, command center for when they go to war. It's all of these things. This is, it's all going to come to God. It's all going to come to God in the end because He's the heart of this community. Remember, he's the, he's the reactor at the core of the power plant that is Israel. Now, we get to the fun section. Verse 11. This is going to seem out of the blue. So let me just read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him by sleeping with another man, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act. Because what would happen if there was witness and they're caught in the act? The, uh, Exodus has already made that clear. The, the punishment is, uh, for, is capital punishment for both the man and the woman. So this is talking about adultery has been committed but it hasn't been caught. 
Nobody's actually caught them in the act. So if all this happens, verse 14, and if a spirit of jealousy comes over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she's not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an alpha of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour oil on it or put incense on it because it's a grain offering for jealousy. And that was, you can go back to Leviticus to look up those details. A reminder offering to draw attention to the guilt. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall unbind her hair and place in her hands the remainder offering, or the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse, or the waters of cursing and bitterness is how it's rendered in Hebrew. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has slept with you, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have defiled yourself by sleeping with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse of the oath, May the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your... This is where it's translated in different translations. Literally it says, uh, when he causes your... Uh, da, 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 yeah. The Lord, uh, may, the Lord call, may the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your thigh to fall away or drop and your belly to swell. That's literally what it says. All your translations may say something different. May this water that brings curse enter your body so that your belly swells and your thigh drops or falls. Then the woman is to say, Amen, Amen, or so be it. This is the first time the word Amen is actually used in the Bible, by the way, like as we use it, Amen. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll, then wipe them off or wash them off into the bitter water. He shall have the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water will enter her for bitterness. Or NIV says, will enter her and cause bitter suffering. But it just says, enter her for bitterness. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he's to have the woman drink the water. If she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, then when she is made to drink the water that brings a curse for bitterness... It will go into her, and the NIV says, and cause bitter suffering. Her belly will swell and her thigh will drop, and she will become accursed among her people. However, if the woman has not defiled herself and is free from impurity, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. Literally, it says, and will be able to be sown with seed. This, then, is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and defiles herself while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear her guilt. NIV says, bear the consequence of her sin. Now, happy Valentine's Day. <coughs> so, immediately, this passage is weird to us. It may, it, it's, it's bizarre. I want to give you a little bit of background in the ancient Near East that will at least help you understand where this whole concept is coming from. In Babylon, 
in the Code of Hammurabi. So this is around before the time, right around the time of uh, contemporaries, roughly speaking, give or take a few centuries. In Hammurabi's Code, there are all of these laws. And they're, they're very similar. Some are very similar to the laws in Scripture of Moses, and then some are very different. And so people say, oh, Moses plagiarized Hammurabi. Yeah, maybe, or maybe these are just known laws, like the laws in America and the laws in Canada are pretty similar, even though Canada doesn't plagiarize our laws. They just, we have a shared value system. So it could be that's, I think that's probably more what's going on. But anyway, the Code of Hammurabi, one of the laws says, if a man, let me read you two separate laws so you understand what's going on. If a man brings a char brought a charge of sorcery against a man, but has not proved it, the one against whom the charge of sorcery was brought Upon going to the river, and the river is capitalized like a deity, the, the river god. This is in Babylon, so it would be the Euphrates. Uh, the, the, going to the river shall throw himself into the river. If the river has then overpowered him, his accuser shall take over his estate. If the river has shown that man to be innocent, and he has accordingly come forth safe, the one who brought the charge of sorcery against him shall be put to death, while the one who threw himself in the river shall take over the estate of his accuser. If a man came forward with a false testimony in a case and has not proved the word which he spoke, if that case was a case involving life, then that man shall be put to death. So this is one of the background elements. In, in ancient Near East law, and this would be Babylon, before the time of Moses, if you accuse, if, you, if there's a capital offense accusation, and sorcery would be one for Babylonians, and it's one in scripture as well, but it could be any capital offense. If you accuse someone and there's no evidence, you can't decide. There's no eyewitnesses. Then the way they settled it was called the trial by ordeal. And what would happen in a trial by ordeal is you would basically say, let the gods decide. So you take the person, you're guilty, you throw them in the river. If they drown, that's the gods saying they're guilty. <laughs> if they survive, that's the gods saying they're innocent. And then the person who accused them gets thrown in the river. So it was this, this was, this was kind of how justice in the ancient world, I mean, I'm just wanting to give you a feel of things. So trials by ordeal were for things where a human court can't decide it because the evidence is inconclusive and there are no witnesses. Let the gods decide it. And they would make them do something that was inherently dangerous. And so you were guilty until proven innocent by the river. All right, that's what's important to remember. Same book, same section, or a few laws down. It says, if a man points the finger at a nun or the wife of another man, but has proved nothing, that means point the finger like accuse of impropriety or adultery or something shameful, they shall drag that man into the presence of the judges and cut off his hair or half of his hair. So again, cutting off the hair was seen as a sign of disgrace, that's another aspect of the culture that you need to remember when reading Numbers 5. The cutting of the hair is, is seen as this is something, this is, there's, there's some disgrace going on here. Then it says, um, if the wife of a man has been caught while lying with another man, they shall bind them both and throw them into the river. If the husband of the woman wishes to spare his wife, then the king in turn may spare his subject. If a man's wife was accused by her husband, but she was not caught while lying with another man, she shall make affirmation by God and return to her house. If the finger was pointed at the wife of a man because of another man, but she has not been caught while lying with the other man, she shall throw herself into the river for the sake of her husband. 
the point in all of this in the Babylonian laws is if there was cause of impropriety, if there was a, a, a charge of impropriety, then there was, a, there was dishonor on that family. And so long as that dishonor remained, that family remained in a state of dishonor, in a state of, um, I mean, we, we, we know it today because it's so widespread as gossip. And we don't think anything about it. I mean, there are whole shows on TV about gossip. If you, you, those of you that watch Real Housewives, you know what I'm talking about. Um, there are shows that are all about their tabloids, gossip. It's not a big deal in our culture. It was a capital offense in ancient cultures. And this is outside of the Bible, what I just read to you. That's Babylon, pagan Babylon. Accusing another man's wife of infidelity was a serious charge. It was a capital charge. If it was true, her and the one she committed adultery with were to pay with their lives. If it was not true, the one who accused them was to give up their life. So it was a very serious thing. I read all that to say that in the minds of the Israelites, it's not, we can't read this passage through 21st century progressive feminist lenses because that's not the culture to which Moses was writing. He's writing to the culture that's like Babylon in how they treated things like dishonor, marital infidelity, rights of the family, rights of the husband, rights of the woman. Uh, trial by ordeal where that was a normal thing and what we see now when we look at this we see a few things in regard to what numbers does numbers five takes this concept and it does what god does throughout scriptures in a lot of places including the whole building of the tabernacle and the offering of sacrifices circumcision all of these other things that were common in the ancient world Altars, sacrifices, circumcision, dietary restrictions, all of those were common in the, in the cultures around Israel. What God does is He takes those and He turns them, He tweaks them, He modifies them to reflect Him or to speak His message. And that's what we have going on in this passage. God's saying, look, the idea of if there's no one to judge the innocence or the guilt, there's no witness, you should take it to God. Me, not the river, not some nebulous pagan God, it should be brought to me and I will determine it. So that aspect of it, he's actually affirming. But unlike the Babylonian trial by ordeals, which were in the other cultures as well, the trial by or the ordeal in numbers here is not at all dangerous. The thing that the woman drinks is holy water, some dust from the tabernacle floor, and then the ink that the curse was written which would have been like a mixture of maybe ash and some dye from a certain plant or whatever, that ink washed over it. That's not a toxic mixture. That's not a poison. It's, not, it's completely benign. I mean, at worst, it tastes bitter because dirty water tastes bitter. That's what it is. So in order for this ritual to work, God has to be the one to do what's going to happen. This ritual is for a woman who is accused or the husband suspects. It says literally a spirit of jealousy comes over him. NIV says feelings of jealousy, but literally the word is uh, ruach, the word for spirit, a spirit of jealousy. In other words, a, a man, a husband, a patriarch suspects his wife is unfaithful for whatever reason. That's a serious thing. That will rupture the husband-wife bond. Even the suspicion. I mean, jealousy will destroy a relationship. Suspicion will destroy a relationship. It'll eat it away, it'll erode it, it'll give rise to resentment, and that'll give rise to alienation and lack of communication, and the whole family structure is in danger over this thing that has no witness. 
So God then it says, no, this is what you're going to do in that situation. You're going to bring it to me. And it's done in such a way that it upholds the seriousness of the charge of adultery. And it says, yes, the woman who comes forth must take an oath saying, I will bear God's curse if I have done this. But if I haven't done this, I'll be vindicated. God is going to vindicate me. And then that's when the oath is done, the offering is given, she drinks the water. And then it's not an instantaneous thing. The punishment is her, and this is where translations differ, her, it, literally her thigh drops, her belly swells. Some have said this refers to thigh dropping. Well, thigh is a euphemism in Scripture for genitalia. We've seen that in males where it talks about Abraham, children coming from his own thigh. Um, that was a euphemism. Or, or, you know, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. And we talked about how weird that was, but th that's a euphemism. So it's possible, some scholars have said this means there's like um, a, a prolapsed uterus, which is a great thing to say out of a lunch Bible study. A prolapsed uterus. Um, but it's the dropping of the uterus and something funky going on down there. And the swelling of the belly, like distended belly or, or, or something abdomen-wise, something. So in other words, but they don't know. You read the literature, read the scholars, they're divided on this, on what it actually means. Some have said, and some translations even say, if she's guilty, the woman will miscarry. But that's not what's going on in the text. There's no indication she's pregnant. And there's, there's nothing that's, there's words for miscarriage. And, and the, this is, if this meant miscarriage, it would be a very, very, very weird way to say it. Rather, this is something involving the woman and her ability to bear children because what God's saying is if you have cheated, if you have broken the covenant, then the very blessing that I've bestowed upon woman, which is bringing forth new life, carrying on the family line, being fruitful and multiplying, you give that up. And if you're caught with eyewitnesses, you give it up with your life, man and woman. If you're not caught and it's suspicion, God alone will know and He will judge and you, your life won't be forfeit, but your ability to bring forth life will be forfeit. If, on the other hand, you're innocent, nothing will happen to you and you'll be able to have children and be blessed with it. So this ritual, for us, we look at it and we look at it through the lens of history and we go, this is weird. The first question I ask, well, what if the wife suspects the husband of cheating? Well, husbands it's not like God's overlooking that. If a husband's caught, he's put to death. Um, if there's accusations and there's witnesses, put to death. God deals with infidelity on God's timing. In the sense of a legal protection of the family unit, this is the law that God gives His people. And it's for, in the ancient Near East culture, you know, when we read in comparison with the Babylonian text especially, this one is a much more progressive way of doing that than Babylon was. The Babylonian culture, Hammurabi was like, oh, you got accused? Okay, you're guilty unless the river God spares you and you're thrown in. What God says is, oh, you're accused? All right, come forward in my tabernacle. Stand before me. Swear your innocence. Be willing to literally ingest a curse. That's what it is. Writing a curse down and then washing it off into the water is a powerful symbolic way of saying, I am, I am ingesting this pronouncement by God. And if you're innocent, your innocence will be known, not just to your husband, but to the entire community. And your innocence will forever be upheld. There won't be this suspicion, well, I really suspect it. I can't prove it, but I suspect it. And then there's the gossip and then the whispering. That, no, this is public vindication. 
And that's part of the reason for, in the Old Testament, trials. Trials are not just for the punishing of the guilty, but they're also for the vindication of the accused. This comes up, comes up in our culture. I've had these discussions before when it talks about trials where, where things are, especially in our culture with police shootings, and you know, it's like people riot over this and that, and you know, grand juries that don't send something to trial, and, and people want justice, and all, all in that. What I've suggested to people is, look, if, if we take a case where there is a public accusation against someone, whether it's true or not, there is a character assassination going on. And so if it's not true, then that person should have a right to be publicly vindicated in an open way that everybody sees. And if it is true, then that person should be publicly punished in a way that everyone sees. In other words, the spirit of this law can apply even to things today that we deal with in our society. When we see mob rules starting to arise and this sense of, of like the, the whole group turning on someone and in the age of social media, it's really easy. You know, you just post a picture of somebody and say this person did this bad thing and then people will just pile on them. And, and so it's important in order to pre prevent that from becoming mob rule and, and guilt by popularity, there need to be some way for those who are accused but who are innocent to demonstrate in the face of everyone their innocence. And, and, and how that works in our culture and the ramifications for that, again, you can decide that on your own, in your communities, talking with people, but the core concept that should apply in all of the situations is when there's public accusation and it's serious, especially if it's lethal, if it's a, if it's a capital accusation, there needs to be public vindication. And that not only protected the woman, but it also protected the family, the entire family who were under this black cloud of accusation because, you know, you want to you you tell somebody that their mother is unfaithful, that's a quick way to get them to hate you and want to fight you. Um, that's a serious accusation. And then the last line that, that people wonder about, the husband will be, and it sounds in the NIV, it's like the husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences because women are stupid and property and God hates women and all this stuff. This is, this is how you get these radical feminist readings of this text that don't actually take into account the culture. What that last line, all the last line is saying is if the husband feels the jealousy and the suspicion and goes to make this act to clarify it, then if the sin hasn't been committed, every, it's all vindicated and the husband just needs to give the offering and call it a day. Because in Babylon, the person who made the accusation and it was false gets killed. So that's what this is saying is you're not going to kill the husband just because he accused the wife. You just, God settled it. Go home. No more killing. All right, so in response, when we read this section in Numbers 5, in our culture, it immediately raises all these red flags, which it should. In our culture, this would not be an appropriate way to do justice. We are not a theocracy. We do not have a tabernacle with holy water and dust from the floor. We do not have a covenant with Yahweh as a nation. So this would be totally inappropriate for a way for us to do justice today. But the core that, that, that guides it is a completely appropriate in any justice situation, which is protection for the reputation of the victim or the accused, protection of the family and the cohesiveness, restitution for wrongs that have been done, 
and public vindication for someone who could have their character assassinated if gossip was allowed to just go unchecked. So when you read this section, it's not like, oh, this is a wonderful section. Write it on your Valentine's cards and greeting cards. And not necessarily. It is problematic for us for a number of reasons. But it's one of those things in Scripture where we have to see that the problem arises because our culture is so vastly different from the culture that this was being given to at the time. And when we make that, take the core principle and bring it through the lens of the cross, when we see how Jesus treated people accused of adultery, remember His incident with a woman accused of adultery, when we see all of that, that's when we arrive at the ethic for today. This is the ethic for then, and we need to trace its development through the whole span of Scripture. So, we're one minute over, but we started one minute late, so we're good. Um, If you want any seconds, we've got plenty. Otherwise, have a great Valentine's Day, and we'll see you next week, Numbers chapter 6.